Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on Claire Jean Kim. She's a professor of political science and Asian American studies at the University of California, Irvine. She's the author of two previous books, Bitter Fruit, The Politics of Black Korean Conflict in New York City, and Dangerous Crossings, Race, Species, and Nature in a Multicultural Age, both of which earned Best Book Awards from the American Political Science Association, and her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, and Miss Magazine, and she's been a guest commentator on MSNBC and NPR. Dr. Kim has been a fellow of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And her new book, available now, is called Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World. Welcome, Claire. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And so before we begin, I wanted to say, uh, so I was really excited to start this episode, well, to do this episode in general. Uh, so my mentor, who I talk about frequently on our podcast, Dr. Tim Stroop, he actually taught a class on affirmative action. So uh, when I, I was a student at John Jay College, which is pretty much it's a college of criminal justice slash law. And so for Tim, a lot of the stuff that we covered, so it was an ethics and law class, a senior level class. And so as I'm reading the article, what I'm going, and you know, we're going through Justice Powell and uh, strict scrutiny, and I'm like, oh my God, so much of this stuff was on my final. <laughs> So it's so cool to kind of revisit these cases again. Uh, so I haven't thought about these since probably 2011, 2012. So it's going to be really cool to just revisit them and to go back to it. Uh, so Tim passed away you know, now a couple of years ago. And so I, it's really kind of sad because I wish he got to see it. I'm actually going to send the episode over to his wife, uh, who's also a professor. And uh, so, yeah, so I want to read a passage from uh, from the article that we're going to talk about. And obviously, we're also going to get into Claire's book. And yeah, just all of these different cases, which are for our audience, they're just going to be super fascinating. That was legit one of my favorite classes. Is, you know, everybody knows. Okay, so Claire wrote, during the 18, 1980s and 90s, as many colleges and universities focused their race-conscious admissions efforts on, quote-unquote, underrepresented minorities, Asian Americans, already well-represented through ordinary admissions, were sometimes not included. White conservatives rushed to say affirmative action was penalizing hardworking Asian American students as well as white students, giving the right racial cover as it tried to end affirmative action once and for all. So I love your take on all of this, and it's something that we don't ordinarily think about. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's kind of hard to say, you know, who's we in this case, but at least something that I wouldn't necessarily think about intuitively. So when we think about affirmative action, we do tend to think about it black and white, you know, uh, how do sort of black people get represented in these cases? Um, how do they get represented in the admissions process? Uh, but what's so great is that you focus on Asians and on Asian Americans, and especially how they're included and also how they're weaponized, the term that you use. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about the history of Chinese immigrants and obviously Asian immigrants more generally, more broadly, and essentially, uh, you know, and we'll just call it like it is, you know, how the system of white supremacy pretty much co-opted them for its own sort of, you know, uh, what would you call it, for its own sort of, uh, not premises, uh, for its own sort of uses. So in the book that's coming out, Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, one of the things I do is say white supremacy is this important historical force, as you mentioned, but there's this other historical force that's been even more powerful in shaping race in the US. And that's something we don't talk about, um, we being, meaning the general public, um, and that is anti-blackness. And I think that the Black Lives Matter movement, black scholars and thinkers have started to really introduce this terminology into public discourse so that we can understand what they're referring to, which is a structure of um, anti-Black feeling, anti-Black sentiment that has been institutionalized since slavery in this country, and that is a distinct thing from white supremacy. So just to make the distinction, white supremacy you could think of as a force pushing down all non-white groups. And mm -hmm. anti-Blackness is a force that pushes up all non-Black groups, right? So force, groups are sort of caught in between these two forces in different ways, right? White people are lifted up by both, Black people are pushed down by both. Asian Americans, interestingly, are lifted up by anti-Blackness, even though they're pushed down by white supremacy. So things get a lot more complicated and a lot more accurate when we think about the two forces um, articulating with one another. In terms of the first Chinese immigrants coming in in significant numbers, this is during the gold rush in California, 18, late 1840s. From the beginning, you know, white Americans didn't know exactly where to place them, his, uh, racially speaking. Um, and so what, what evolved over the following decades was this idea that the Chinese, although they were clearly inferior to whites, were also not slaves. They were also not black. 
Um, and the main way that this sh showed up was by saying that the uh, Chinese immigrants were not enslavable. And a lot was made out of this because they were inferior workers, they were degraded workers, but they were also never enslaved. Um, and this meant that they belonged to the family of man, they were recognized as fully human, as having political and social coordinates, right, because they were seen as um, subjects of the Chinese empire. Now that empire was seen as degenerating and um, inferior and backward compared with the West, but it was also seen as a bona fide civilization. Whereas black people during this period were described as beasts living in the jungle with other beasts, uh, with, with animals. So um, a very different positioning of the Chinese from the start. And the argument I make in the book is that different positioning um, has carried forward in time. So that even today in 2023 in the US, we see the positioning of Asian Americans as not white, but also not black. Um, and this I think is really a global phenomenon if we look at it more broadly, but in the book, I, I focus mostly on the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and can we talk about a little bit about that some of the history, especially Chinese immigration during the time of slavery or around that time? So the Chinese immigrants coming in, um, it's important to remember they're coming in in the middle of the 19th century. This is the moment historically when the nation is really racked with all of this racial strife, right? And the, the moment leading up to the Civil War. And again, the Chinese were not seen as enslavable. And in that sense, they started to serve as sort of a transitional labor force, right? Because um, the US was starting to move from slavery toward free labor, quote unquote, free labor. And the Chinese were seen, again, as inferior to white labor, but also as free and therefore able to be um, not, you know, non-slave free workers. So they were paid a wage. They signed contracts, unlike slaves, for example, who were never signed contracts and were not paid wages. Um, and the Chinese who came into California, they were able to um, migrate around. They could leave a job, go to another job that they thought paid better. That was an incredibly important distinction, right, with slaves in the South who were uh, locked down on the plantations where they um, where they were being held held captive. So um, there's that really important distinction between the two types of labor as they were seen in the white imagination. Mm. Yeah. And then so as now we're getting we're kind of getting on or uh, passing along the ages, I mean, now we have these two important cases going into the Supreme Court. Uh, so what now it's sort of divided in terms of the stance of different types of uh, or different Asian Americans, I would say different kind of political uh, ideologies. And so how did that split happen? So on the one hand, you have people who are more conservative, who essentially, you know, let's say so I'm going to just point to the case that we recently had in New York City. So we have um, so Stuyvesant High School and I think a few other technical high schools here. Um, so essentially they're uh, there's this this sort of um what would you call it? This kind of chasm between uh, the different groups where there's a, this understanding that, well, you know, gifted education programs are pretty racist. And so we have to kind of make it more equitable for people. And then uh, let's say Asian Americans, I would say for the most part here, they're mostly on the side of uh, probably the more conservative types where they would say something along the lines of, well, you know, these these schools are represented mainly with Asian students. So if we uh, if we shut down these gifted programs, we're the ones who are going to suffer. So it's, it's a really complicated and thorny issue here because, I mean, you could obviously see the case. Uh, so how would you how would you understand and how we now uh, now going forward and thinking about these in terms of admissions uh, standards, admissions uh, programs, especially how now do we start thinking about how Asians are sort of uh, pinned against one another? But also, I mean, how do they benefit from it? Because, I mean, here in New York City, they definitely have. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm a little bit familiar with the Stuyvesant case, and it's similar mm -hmm. to the case um, with Lowell High School in the 1990s in San Francisco. And these are similar to the case against Harvard and UNC. Um, Chapel Hill in um, the Supreme Court. So what all of these cases have in common is that Asian Americans are seen as um, the, the plaintiffs in all of these cases have said that, um, or the Asian Americans in all of these cases have said Asian Americans are being benefited um, from regular admissions and that if we try to introduce race conscious um, policies that they will be harmed. And if a group has already been historically discriminated against on the basis of race, it seems doubly unfair to then say, we're gonna put in place race conscious programs, which um, make things harder for you. So in all of mm -hmm. these cases, um, we see Asian Americans pushing back against affirmative action or desegregation efforts. This is you know, highly problematic because on the one hand, they're um, benefiting from, for example, in the Stuyvesant case or the Lowell High School case, they or um, Harvard case, 
they may be benefiting from standardized testing, for example. And it's very um, clearly proven by a lot of scholarship over decades that standardized testing, it favors people who are wealthy and favors people who are white on the whole mm -hmm. um, and favors people who are not black. Um, and so if you look at standardized testing as already building in that kind of inequality or that unfairness, where Asian Americans on the whole being socioeconomically advantaged relative to black people are, are getting you know further ahead on the basis of that system, then defending that system, it really becomes problematic. And we, we're seeing a shift in higher education away from reliance upon those tests precisely because of their unfairness, right? So that's a sort of an ongoing struggle. Um, but the issue in the Harvard case in front of the Supreme Court is that Asian Americans for the first time are the public face of the case, right? This is the first case in the Supreme Court dealing with race conscious admissions in higher education where Asian Americans have been the plaintiffs, not white students, right? And that's different from the prior three uh, affirmative action cases that the court has heard and since the 70s. So, and this was very deliberate, right? Ed Bloom, the conservative white activist with um, billionaire donors whose agenda, very outspoken agenda is to roll back the reforms of the civil rights period and put into question things like voting rights, for example, which you know we've seen the result of that these days. Um, Ed Bloom's agenda has been very explicitly to use Asian American plaintiffs because he understands that that gives him more of an advantage in the court of public opinion. Um, and, you know, I don't think that this court, which was compiled, as you know, by three, you know, with the addition of three Trump appointees, really needed the Asian American plaintiffs to be able to rule against affirmative action. I think they were going back going to go that way anyways. But the, the presence of Asian American plaintiffs gives them more cover. They can say, as some of these justices have said, like Alito and, and Thomas in the past in their dissenting opinions in prior cases, they can say, well, we are on the side of minorities who are being harmed by affirmative action, right? They don't have to worry about the charge that they are helping white students mm. at the cost of minority students. So then the question really becomes, what does minority mean? Right. And should Asian Americans be considered a minority in the same way that black students are considered a minority? And if you take seriously the idea that historically we have an anti-black order where Asian Americans are positioned in a unique, unique way above black people, then the idea of this flattening term, right, minorities really um, becomes a problem. Wow. OK, that that does complicate things huh? in terms of the disparity between, you know, uh, one minority and the other. So yeah, so let's talk about the system, right? So yeah. the system here is, uh, it's fascinating because it's you can kind of see the implicit hierarchy here. And so can we, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. So how does the system work? And how is it that so in just in history and generally, how is white supremacy co-opted other cultures, you know, again, for their own uses? So on the one hand, you know, you have uh, what seems like on the surface to be a pretty legitimate argument, especially which is why I, uh, I mentioned the Stuyvesant case, because it is, I would say, you know, a decent amount of Asian students. I don't know if it's the predominant amount, I would say there's a good chance it is from my vague memory. Uh, but with that said, right, so how does the kind of system work and how does it, why does it need to co-op different types of minorities or different cultures in order for, you know, to sustain itself? Well, I'd like to pull back the camera and look at the system more broadly, right? How does um, anti-blackness work? If we wanted to really pull back the camera, we'd, we'd start with the question, how does anti-blackness work on a global level? And how has that, you know, how did that begin in the era of racial slavery? But since my focus in the book is on the US, I'll start there because what's happening in the Harvard case or in the Stuyvesant case or any of these cases is a microcosm of what's happening in at the national level, right? So sometimes people when talking about affirmative action get very lost in the weeds because there's so many technical, you know, there's so much technical jargon and it's a very legalistic kind of issue. But I think it's important not to get lost in those weeds and to pull back and actually look at what are the longer term historical dynamics that were that are going on here, what are the power dynamics that are in play here um, that are that we lose sight of if we focus just on the details so. Um, part of what's happening in you know these cases again is the fact of Asian American positionality as this unique position of being not white but above all not black that mm -hmm. idea allows for um, white people to actually weaponize Asian Americans against uh, black people. So I'll give you a specific example. One of the ways, places we could see this really start to happen is during World War II, 
which seems kind of improbable. But during World War II, even as the U.S. government is interning Japanese Americans following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, at that moment, they're starting to say, how do we release these Japanese Americans from internment? Because we didn't really intend in the first place to keep them for a long period of time. They initially had intended to relocate the population, then through a series of sort of missteps ended up interning them. That's another story. But once they had them interned, they were eager to figure out how to get out of this, how to release the population while taking into account that they had already sold the American public on the idea that these people were dangerous, right? Were aiding and abetting the Japanese foe. So at that moment, they start to talk about the Japanese as having all of these wonderful traits, as being good citizens, as being model uh, family people, as being hardworking, et cetera. And they create release programs where they start relocating um, Japanese Americans, especially the Nisei, the second generation. So people in their 20s, maybe 30s, they start relocating them to places in the Midwest, for example, like Chicago, and helping them find jobs, helping them find housing. And as this starts to happen, they're selling the American public a new story, which is these people can be assimilated into the US um, population, into the US society. And part of the reason they're doing this is because they're getting so much flack on the international level from Japanese war propaganda, which is hammering the US for being anti-Black, for Jim Crow, for segregation. Um, and so, and also domestic critics, right? Because the Black freedom movement in the US and around the world is using the opportunity of World War II also to hammer the US for being anti-Black and having segregation, et cetera. So the US is under, in a public relations crisis. And it turns to the Japanese Americans and says, our release programs from the camps and our um, helping these people resettle and get jobs can be used as a PR campaign. And this is explicitly what they do. I mean, the, the historical documentation on this is very clear. They say these people are a model minority. These people have um, are hardworking. They can assimilate well, and they start to build up that story using the iconic Nisei soldiers, right, who were incredibly brave and earned all of these, um, um, you know, medals for their bravery in war, mm. using those Nisei battalions as sort of proof that anybody can make it in the U.S even if you're not white, as long as they try hard enough. So um, that became right this moment where the um, Asian American, the figure of the Asian American starts to be used for national PR purposes on the global stage. And you can see that as very clearly being angled against the Black Freedom Movement, because that, that's the moment where the Black Freedom Movement and its allies around the world are saying, look at segregation. The U.S. claims to be fighting for democracy. The U.S. claims to be different from Nazi Germany, but it has segregation, and which mm -hmm. is similar to Nazi Germany, which in fact inspired Nazi Germany, right? We know that Nazi uh, jurists were actually studying segregation in the U.S. and inspired by it. In fact, oh, some wow. of them thought, yeah, some of them thought the U.S. was too harsh, right? They, <laughs> that they didn't want to follow that model. So, wow. um, so we have that historical connection. And as Black um, activists are trying to make this point, taking the opportunity of World War II to make this point on the global stage, the U.S. is trotting out Japanese Americans and saying, well, actually, look, we're a racial democracy and this is our proof. So we see that um, pattern beginning, I would argue, actually earlier than that, but that's sort of a moment where it's very clear um, on, a, on a grand scale that that dynamic is happening. Wow, man. Yeah. And then so, wow. So um, just, you know, again, just thinking about the actual the affirmative action cases. Um, so can we actually get into the technicalities of it? So who was Justice Powell? Uh, can we get into some of the earlier cases? Uh, and also what is strict scrutiny? That's something I remember learning in my ethics and law class. Strict scrutiny is uh, a test that the court has put in place to um, evaluate classifications that are normally suspect in the, in the eyes of the court. So any um, law that involves a racial classification in the Supreme Court's eyes has to pass the strict scrutiny test. And that's the highest level of scrutiny, right? For other kinds of classifications, the court has lower levels of scrutiny. So this is the highest level of scrutiny the court can bring to bear, meaning the court is very suspicious of racial classifications built into the law. So um, strict scrutiny in the case of affirmative action um, the law, the affirmative action program has to show it serves a compelling government interest and it has to show that what it's doing to serve that interest is narrowly tailored, as narrowly tailored as possible, 
And finally, it has to show um, that it has considered all other race neutral alternatives, right? So strict scrutiny is really set up to show we've tried everything else. We're being as narrow as possible and only serving the most, you know, cherished or significant interests. Um, so it's already kind of apologetic and defensive, if you know what I mean, from the beginning. It's saying the state will only undertake racial, racial classification um, under these very specific circumstances. It's a high bar. It's very difficult to pass. And as Justice Marshall said um, in the Baki case, it's ironic that the Supreme Court is suddenly, right in the modern era, post-civil rights era, getting serious about looking critically at race class racial classifications in the law, when for centuries they said, you know, they endorsed racial classifications in the law, most right. famously in Plessy v. Ferguson, where they uh, held up um, segregation in the Jim Crow South. So just at the time when the law is starting to be used to try to remedy racial class, racial inequities that have been created, you know, systemically, institutionally, the court's saying, well, we, we should be pretty skeptical of racial classifications because they're dangerous. And so that's sort of the bind that you see affirmative action being caught in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of, I just want to bring in pop culture into this a little bit because I think it's relevant, especially to liberals. So, you know, the uh, episode that Joe Rogan just did with Bill Maher? Sure. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but it's, okay. Uh, Claire, but I'm sure you're familiar with Bill Maher, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Bill Maher has, a, I would say, a pretty, so I want to actually get into this and I do want to get your take because I actually disagree with him. I, I'm not really sure where you are here, but I'm, I'm, I'll talk about it. Uh, so yeah, so Bill Maher said, you know, he's like, where are we in a country where we take race so seriously? So he's not exactly against Black Lives Matter, but I think for Bill Maher, the understanding is uh, we're too race conscious as opposed to where we were, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. And what's what his take is essentially is that, you know, he says when when we were, let's say when we were kids or whatever, you know, the, the kind of prevalent idea in the schools was, well, you know, we shouldn't like consider race at all. We shouldn't, we should think of, you know, people as being race, raceless, right? You're cuddleless or whatnot. And so for him, he's like, you know, I would think that, you know, the classical liberal type would think, oh, I want to go beyond thinking about race. So race shouldn't be as important as it is. So, and that's what's so interesting about that is, and it's so interesting to me that he doesn't see this, is that that's actually in some ways the arguments that conservatives make, especially against affirmative action. Yeah. So going, going back, because I want to talk about that in my class a little bit. So going back into my class, I remember at the beginning, so I was at the time, I I was a hyper conservative, a super libertarian. So when, when we were going through these arguments, kind of going through the back and forth about it, I was thinking, yeah, but like, doesn't it make sense? So like, you know, as Americans, shouldn't we be against racializing people and lumping people into these different categories? And so my mentor at the time, he was telling me, he said, look, but okay, but just think about it, right? So he says, if we're doing that, let's say if we're, let's say we're negating race, right? You're not negating the history of race. That doesn't automatically disappear. So all of the consequences of that, especially in this case, slavery, that doesn't just go away. So, okay, sure. You can say something like, yeah, let's not take race into consideration, but then what do we do with people who are living down here in the socioeconomic level, as opposed to the people who often get a leg up, which is, you know, technically usually white, rich, you know, the waspies, the wasp people, you know, the weird, whatever you'd call it, whatever label you want to use. And so I actually had no answer to that. And that's when I started thinking, and you know, this is why I mentioned Bill Maher. Uh, so I started thinking like, yeah, wow. You know, even though it would seem like the classic liberal line is that you shouldn't see color and you should obviously see beyond that. I think what we should probably say is, yes, if you're thinking about people individually and you're getting to know the person, you're saying to yourself, yeah, who cares You know what color this person is? What difference sure. does it particularly make? Uh, but what I think we should be saying is, no, when we're thinking systemically, race is never going to go away. That's not an issue that just because you don't want to think about it or you want to pretend it doesn't exist, it's not going to stop impacting the rest of everybody, especially people who are not you. It's not going to stop impacting everybody's lives. So. Yeah, plus race and socioeconomic status are tied together as well. Even if you remove race, you'd still have to analyze, okay, systemically, what's what's going on here? Why are why is why are this many people uh disenfranchised? And um, you know, for example, white people, for example, overall, they're benefiting the most. And yeah. uh there are a lot of uh black Americans who are uh like I was saying, socioeconomic right. disenfranchised. And you have you do have to examine these things and, you know, um, have these labels. Yeah, right? it's like it's it's, in it's a surface level thinking, essentially, to just I mean, like it's it's very nice. It's idealistic. And I actually I, I like it when relating to somebody else. Of course, you don't see race. You see the person in front of you. Uh, you, you know, you get ego out of the way. You have a like a nice you know, interaction with them. Right. That that's that's a beautiful thing. But you do have to look historically what what is going on here in order to 
yeah. be better informed. Yeah. So, so Claire, would you say systemically, I mean, we can't really negate the idea of race. I mean, it's always going to be a part of us until obviously in some ideal world, the system is negated altogether. Well, I think, yeah, I'll leave that last part about the ideal world uh, for, for later. Um, just to say that, you know, one thing that's powerful about what's happening in a lot of black studies scholarship and the book that I just wrote is based on a much closer engagement with black studies scholarship since my last two books and um, hence my interest in and focus on anti structural anti blackness um, and the argument here building on philosopher France Fanon is that um, when you say a society is structurally anti-Black, what you mean is it has been organized on a psychological and institutional level around the phobic avoidance of Blackness, around the hatred and avoidance of Blackness. So we can start with slavery, and then we can trace right slavery to Jim Crow, convict leasing, segregation, uh, housing segregation around the nation, over-policing, mass incarceration to today. Um, and we can draw that through line, as many scholars have, and show that the um, how blackness becomes sort of the thing to be avoided, the thing to be distanced from at all costs. And even though we've gone through, you know, the civil rights revolution, first reconstruction in the Civil War, and then the civil rights revolution of the 60s, we still have an anti-black society, but we are in denial about this fact. And of course, Bill Maher mm -hmm. just contributes to that denial. I mean, and with that comment honestly i mean i've enjoyed bill maher's show in the past but i think he on the on race issues he's really condemning himself to irrelevance by making that comment because what's clear from the murder of george floyd i mean if we're not paying attention before certainly in 2020 with the murder of george floyd and the the outpouring of american grief and outrage you know mm -hmm. the new york times estimated 15 to 26 million americans went into the street to protest what happened with George Floyd. That's the largest protest movement in US history and Black Lives Matter um, protest research around the world, right? In Europe, for example, in Belgium, to just take one example, Black people took to the streets and started organizing again um, more vigorously against the, the impact of um, Belgian colonialism, right, in Africa. So oh. we see this, um, this really resurgence of um, Black Lives Matter type protests around the world. So it's, I think what, what we're dealing with is people who don't want to admit that slavery is still with us in some form, that we are still dealing with structural anti-Blackness. And, and, and I'd have to put Bill Maher in that category based on that comment. And then people who are trying to say, look, we have this legacy of slavery, which is not automatically fading, right? And it's much deeper than we think. And we, the way that you can see this battle unfolding is look at the bans on so-called critical race theory, right? It's in, at the state level. Um, Republican-led states are starting to try to ban that. Look at the controversy over the New York Times 1619 project, which is trying to reintroduce the topic of slavery into American schools. Um, in general, the American population is not educated on slavery. I know I grew up in the US educational system, um, public and private. I got no education on slavery. So I had to educate wow. myself once I was a already a professor teaching racial politics, right? So we're not getting that education. And there are a lot of people out there, organized interests, trying to stop us from getting that education. Because what happens if we get that education, if we really understand anti-Blackness, then we start thinking about affirmative action differently. Then we start thinking about reparations differently, right? A whole host of issues start to take on a, a different cast. And that's what's... Um, that's what's happening at the state level and at the national level, this fight over what truths the American public will be told and whether um, we will continue to have things concealed from us. Of course, it's not just the U.S. This is happening in every nation. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And for, I mean, for somebody like Bill Maher, I mean, it's obvious that he benefits from the system. I mean, I don't want to exactly say that those are his exact motives. I mean, I don't know Bill Maher personally, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that for him, he would, uh, and this is somebody who has been, a you know, an ally, I would say for in many respects over the years, especially for like, for me, who's an atheist. I mean, this is a person I've looked up to for years. Yeah. It's interesting to me that it's for him, for somebody who is as brilliant as him is, isn't really able to see that. So let's even say something like critical race theory. So if let's say race doesn't exist and all of a sudden these schools can just 
just say, yeah, well, if race isn't that big of a deal, I mean, we can now pick and choose what to teach. So now all of a sudden slavery, you know, critical race theory, these uh, these sort of concepts and, you know, that, that significant part of American history can now just be thrown out based on whims. And I think what you're saying is that, again, this is why the classification is important, not just for affirmative action cases, but obviously just in, case, in the cases of how we you know, treat our students and what we teach them, uh, is fundamentally that this is an important part of history that everybody should know. And again, if we devalue the race, the category system altogether, what happens is that we stop teaching it, or at the very least, we give excuses for different schools and different areas to stop teaching it. And what do you think it is that's maybe contributing to, um, you know, this denial of anti-Black sentiment? Because clearly it exists, right? And I mean, before I suppose before we continue on with that question, I guess you could argue that maybe on the surface, somebody might think something along the line of, well, uh, Black Americans have um, gained uh, an incredible amount of social momentum in the society. Look at uh, pop culture, look at um, uh, desegregation, and um, uh, we had a Black president. And like, I, I imagine somebody might have those kinds of surface level thoughts, and maybe that would contribute to a lack of critical thinking. But I don't know. Uh, what would you think is is uh, causing that denial still? There's I'm thinking of a book uh, that's actually called The Denial of Anti-Blackness. And, and it's a really oh, okay. important question because, as I said, it's sort of a pitched battle at the ideological level um, about whether um, people will be even talking about this term or understanding what it refers to. I think mm -hmm. the denial rests in, um, you know, Franz Fanon is a psychiatrist as well as a philosopher, and he talks about the psychic investment that white people have. He's not talking about other groups, but he's that white people have in creating this black other, right, that they understand themselves mm -hmm. as human through the um, using a black human foil uh, the black person as an anti-human or the slave as the anti-human. So at the very wow. deepest level as human beings, we understand our humanity to rest upon the non-humanity of the black other. So I think, you know, if you want to answer that question at a deep level, that's what's happening. At another level, you could say that groups like Asian Americans and, you know, you could create group affiliations in different ways, cut, cut it in different ways, have a structural investment, right? They have a, a stake in anti-blackness, right? So the Korean mm -hmm. store owner, the Korean immigrant who comes in in the 1970s and opens a grocery store in, you know, Flatbush, Brooklyn, has an investment in anti-blackness, has an investment in the segregation of black neighborhoods where black people don't have the capital, right? They're denied access to capital to open stores in their own neighborhoods, um, which are already produced by segregation. And then these outsiders come in, right? And have the capital for various reasons to open those stores, setting up this merchant customer relationship, which is also inflected with racial and class tensions. Um, so, you know, we see that that's um, happening at the, at the local level to the national level. But I want to go back to Alan to something, a really important point you made, which is race and class being intertwined, right? They're inextricably intertwined. Um, mm -hmm. And the concept of racial capitalism, which came from Cedric Robinson's work, really speaks to the fact that we can't understand capitalism except as a racialized phenomenon, right? And we can mm. see the way that slavery um, really kind of provided an engine or fuel for capitalism, industrialization and uh, the w building the wealth of the nation. So slavery and capitalism, as many scholars have taught us, really go together, race and capitalism go together. And so, um, you know, when we see, um, when we talk about race, as you're both noting, we can't simply set it aside. And one of the reasons is it's completely structured in, you know, it's built into the structure of our society, including the economic hierarchy we're dealing with. And, um, you know, Justice Blackman, I think, I think it was in the Bakke case said, um, we, in order to get beyond race, we must first take account of race, we must first take race into account. Right. And so this idea, as you were saying, Leon, of just sort of wishing race away, um, you know, that's a fantasy that that white people have been involved in for a very long time. But the, the reasons they're doing it, you know, I think are pretty clear. Right. Yeah. And in your article, I remember, uh, so for my vagueish now memory of it. Uh, so you mentioned essentially how the kind of argument went from reparations to diversity. Can we talk a little bit about that and what that meant? So. Black people in the US have been asking for reparations since the time of slavery, right? We can trace the reparations movement among black communities from 
you know, the 18, mid 1800s through today. Um, and that struggle has gone up and down and it's taken an interesting turn recently with California being the first state to appoint a reparations commission, which has come out with actually concrete recommendations, which seem to have some, you know, heft to them. So it'll be interesting whether the California legislature will actually pass any of those recommendations, but the commission, you know, has sort of taken a good look at, at, at reparations and, and come up with some interesting ideas, even though California was not a slave state, technically, right? It entered the union as a quote unquote free state. So, um, but what happened, you know, in the 1960s, of course, with the black civil rights movement and then the black power movement talking about racial liberation and racial revolution, this is the moment when affirmative action gets put in place. And by the time of the first case in front of the Supreme Court, which is Bakke versus um, Regents of the University of California versus Bakke in 1978, um, what you see already at that point is that um, the courts are saying diversity um, is a compelling state interest. And remember going back to the definition of strict scrutiny, um, an admissions program has to serve in order to pass strict scrutiny has to serve a compelling state interest. So the court at this, in this case is saying, we're looking at the University of California Davis Medical School Admissions Program, which involves racial, what they called a racial quota. And we're saying, look, it's based on the idea of societal discrimination, having harmed black and Latinx students. And that's the rationale for the program. And what the court says very, significantly and momentously is we think societal discrimination is too vague. We don't like that concept. We're not willing to actually base a program, let a program stand that is based on that um, concept. Why? Because what is societal discrimination? It's this vague amorphous thing. Even white people were discriminated against like the Irish and certainly Asian people are discriminated against. So, you know, how come they're doing so well? So little by little, the court's reasoning was, well, if we don't feel comfortable with societal discrimination, we could still save affirmative action at the University of California Davis by creating another rationale for the for a you know admissions program that takes race into account. And that rationale they came up with was diversity, right? So in the name of creating a diverse campus, a diverse classroom, which was meant to, you know, help people learn to live in a multiracial society, et cetera become global citizens, et cetera. In that, on that basis, we can allow affirmative action to stand. So you come out of that case, right? It was a very splintered decision, all kinds of different opinions, but you know, the, the, the governing opinion was affirmative action can stand um, if it's based upon um, uh, the diversity rationale. What affirmative action supporters then feel coming out of that case is, well, relief that affirmative action wasn't completely struck down, but also concern because societal discrimination is the best rationale for affirmative action, right? We should take right. race into account because race is always being taken into account in a way that works against black people uh, in particular. So what happens when we make things rest on diversity, right? Is that a strong enough basis? And what we see with the Harvard case, right, this past this year is diversity didn't turn out to be a very strong foundation. And we've moved away from being able to use affirmative action and that kind of state, you know, tool to address racial inequality. We've basically said the state, the state in the form of um, the Supreme Court here has said, Oh, well, if there is racial discrimination, it's just too messy and murky and multifaceted for us to try to address through a program. So mm -hmm. we're just going to talk about diversity as an aspiration instead. And I think that was a very fateful turn and we're seeing the results of it now with the Harvard case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we speak a little bit about that? Because I mean, if you think about it, and this is just, you know, my knee jerk reaction, you would think, isn't diversity a good thing? Isn't that what we should be striving for? But how does that especially legally actually become a barrier to it? Right. So in the university setting, I'm dealing with this, you know, faculty members are dealing with this all the time because universities now have in place formal diversity, equity and inclusion, DEI officers, DEI offices, programs, et cetera. And so I think the people involved in these programs are on the whole, you know, operating in good faith. They believe that they're trying to make things more democratic and more inclusive. 
The problem is when diversity is the goal, right, it becomes sort of a, um, a question of facial representation, right, superficial representation. Do you have black faces in the room? Do you have Asian faces in the room, et cetera? Um, and what's glossed over when you move from thinking about societal discrimination and the history of it to diversity is you're no longer talking about power inequalities, historical oppression, and the legacies, the very living legacies of slavery. So we're not able to address the reality of anti-Blackness if we're talking about how many faces of each color do we have in the classroom. So I'm not trying to discount the important the importance of having diversity as we understand it now in the classroom. And as an educator, I know what a difference that makes. But look at the University, University of California, for example, where I teach at UCI. Um, I think the black population of California is somewhere hovering around 10%, 8 to 10%, um, and in the nation, 12%. Um, in the, at UCI, I believe our percentage of black students is 3%, and our mm -hmm. percentage of Asian American students is over 50%. And we have, I think, 20 or so percent um, Latinx students. So in some ways, we're doing well with diversity. But in some ways, we're really not doing well with diversity, right? So mm -hmm. again, if we can't take into account the power inequities, the inequalities, the injustices that we are still, you know, that are still structuring our reality, then what does diversity really mean? Mm. I see. So uh, these DEI, you know, councils or groups are sort of just what they're just it's just a, a pretty decoration essentially in, in the sense that it's um you know it's 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 it looks like it's doing something but it's not actually um causing any sort of change like for example oh we can demonstrate we have a diversity inclusion group you know uh oh we have uh black members we have asian members Latin, uh, latinx members and and so on However, because the, those groups might only do things like maybe celebrate a particular holiday or talk about, you know, this particular heritage during a particular month or what have you, it's not quite addressing, oh, these, you know, um, uh, power gaps or his historical racism that may have occurred and actually getting any root of a problem. It's, it's, it's like a it's like a front in a way where it's not a front in, in its intention, but it's because it's not, you know, uh, aiming at the root of the issue. Right. That's, you know, it's, it's not uh, doing what it's, it's kind of like a blanket or a bandaid, right? In a sense, like, again, not intended to be, but it's, it's working that way, right. essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, thank you, Alan, for putting it in words that I didn't want to use myself, but yes, I mean, I think it is in oh. a sense, window dressing, right? Because, but again, the people who are involved in those programs, their estimation is, their calculation is, this is the best we can do within the given power structures. We're gonna use whatever tools are being given to us to try to make things more fair. So I think that they are coming at this with the right intentions. Again, as I said, operating in good faith. Good faith the problem yeah. is that any program that is instituted by the university itself is not going to, for example, take a hard look at the role of the university in the society, right? Take a hard look at how the society has become a capitalist, uh, the university has uh. become a capitalist institution, right? Creating corporate drones instead of actually, um, you know, developing intellectual um, capabilities and, and social justice, right, as a, as a goal. So the ways that the university is involved in neoliberal capitalism and in the status quo, those are things that are not going to be addressed by a program that is instituted top down by the university, right? So there's a lot of tension between, let's say, black student unions, which are typically the most sort of radical and free thinking, forward, forward thinking student groups, and the DEI offices, right? You think mm -hmm. on the surface that they're doing the same thing or tr they have the same goals, but there's actually tension between the two because they're not doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I want to actually read another quote from your article. So Claire wrote, the persistent truth of black abjection, the sordid history of how Harvard and other elite institutions excluded black students in the past, the modern integrate, the modest integrationist intent of Harvard's admissions plan and the structural advantages that Asian Americans enjoy as not as not blacks in an anti-black societies. All of these were denied by the alternative reality conducted by SFFA and its and its conservative Chinese immigrant colleagues. Yeah. So can we talk? 
little bit about that. What is the SFFA and how did it play into all of this? So the Students for Fair Admissions was formed after Ed Bloom, again, the white conservative activist with the billionaire donors, after he lost in the case of Fisher v. University of Texas, right, in 2016. After that, um, in 2012, the first part of Fisher, it's divided into two parts. Um, he is on record as saying, I need Asian plaintiffs. I'm going to find Asian plaintiffs. So he created a, a website called Harvard Not Fair, which shows pictures of East Asian students looking very downtrodden, downcast. And the text is, you know, were you denied admission to Harvard? It may be because of your race. So using this tool, he recruits Asian American students who were, you know, who are angry about being denied admission to Harvard. I think they're mostly um, East Asian students, East Asian American students. And um, he creates a class of plaintiffs, right? Again, the first set of plaintiffs that's Asian American in one of these cases. And um, he, he proceeds and the students for fair admissions at the beginning, I think this is pretty amusing, contained Bloom, Abigail Fisher, who is the white woman plaintiff in Fisher v. Texas, that case that failed to take down affirmative action, and her father, right? Those were the founding members. And then some of the lawyers that they um, employed included um, one lawyer who used to clerk for um, Justice Clarence Thomas, right? So you have a, um, you know, a circle of uh, conser white conservative activists who have pretty deep ties to institutional players of various kinds. And they come up with this organization, Students for Fair Admissions. Then they start going after Harvard and UNC, UNC being the public university, Harvard being the private university. They're trying to cover both grounds. And they're also planning cases against various other um, universities. Because now that this has happened with Harvard and UNC, of course, you know, admissions officers everywhere around the country are now busy thinking about what to do, right, with their race conscious admissions programs. So, if they don't move fast enough, you can be sure SFFA is going to come and say, we're bringing a lawsuit against you. So that's coming mm. down the line. But yes, yeah, so SFFA is involved in that. So on the one hand, we have a very long standing white conservative effort against affirmative action. From the moment affirmative action was put in place in the 1960s, ironically by a Republican president, Nixon, um, we've had white conservatives gunning for it, right? From the very beginning, they've said, this is an unfair program. We are a meritocracy. Um, if black students don't work hard enough to get in, that's not our fault. And we shouldn't have to penalize hardworking white students because they're not responsible for slavery. That was their ancestors, right? So we've been hearing these arguments for 50 years or more than 50 years. Um, what's new on the scene prior to the filing of the Harvard case is the arrival of affluent conservative highly educated Chinese conservative immigrants. So these are the people who have been active in the Stuyvesant case. These were the people who um, helped close down affirmative action in Lowell High School in San Francisco. So they've been active politically for, you know, a few decades now. And we're seeing in the Harvard case sort of the fruition um, of their efforts. This was for them really, you know, what they were aiming for. This is the culmination of their efforts. And these people dovetail with white conservatives like Bloom ideologically, right? They believe in capitalism, they believe it's a meritocracy, they believe essentially in beefing up the status quo. They don't believe in any efforts to challenge it or mitigate it or address inequalities. They think inequalities are natural because some people are better than others and some people work harder than others and therefore should get more than others, right? So. Um, that's obviously a denial of structural inequalities, of structural anti-blackness, um, and of power itself. It's a denial of that. But what's interesting is these Chinese immigrant professional groups, and there are a number of like local groups in California, we have many of them, are incredibly successful. Hmm. In terms, like as a political scientist sitting back and looking at these groups, it's, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, there've always been some conservatives among Asian American communities, but they have been so successful mobilizing on Chinese language, um, social media platforms and um, getting people to turn out, right? There was their protests against um, officer Peter Lee in support of officer Peter Liang in 2014 in Brooklyn. And they turned out, I think 14,000 Chinese Americans. Wow. Um, you know, Asian Americans, 
historically do not show up in the street in that way. And so what we're seeing is something we haven't seen in Asian American politics, which is to this point, which is a very organized, well-resourced, um, just incredibly savvy group of people. And they, you know, the, the success in the Harvard case, I think, is a real sign of what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. And so just thinking about it, even from like our own personal experiences, just from our family. So we're from the Russian Ukrainian background. And so for a lot of our parents, I mean, it, very similar to I'm assuming with Asian parents. So I mean, I would say that some of our Asian friends would probably agree too. So the thinking was, it's like, look, you guys, we brought you to this country. It is a meritocracy. And the reason why we are able to be so successful is because we work hard. So on the surface, obviously, it seems like it, it makes sense. And it seems like it works out. But if you're just thinking about it in terms of, first of all, the comparison between what the Soviet Union was like, as opposed to to what their lives are like, you know, from the 90s on to what they are now. Mm -hmm. And then that's, let's say, one comparison. And then you look at the sort of like the ceiling for them. Uh, I think for our parents, a lot of what they don't understand, even as business owners, we will never be part of that community. We will never be part of the billionaire, multimillionaire class. Like, so for the immigrants who came here, and I mean, yes, it's a, it's a hell of a story. And obviously for our parents, it makes them feel good knowing, okay, we were dirt poor back then. And now, you know, we're able to make lives of, out of, uh, let's say, our communities and we're able to just, you know, be somewhat separate semi-successful, whatever that is, right? Let's say even some of them do go on to become millionaires and whatever that is. Uh, but that's still not to say that they're going to be part of the upper classes of society. So these are people that even like, even though they get some uh, they get some sort of chips tossed at them, they have no political power. And I think our parents really failed to realize that. So they think, oh, well, okay, we vote. And again, you know, we're able to kind of have our businesses and we're left alone, right? I think that's the most important thing for them. But again, they have no political power in this country. And I would wonder if for Asian American families, it's maybe the same thing. Thing where they're not really seeing that. So they're seeing, okay, you know, let's say, again, going back to the Stuyvesant case, well, you know, our kids are in these schools, uh, they're doing something with their lives, you know, back in China, we weren't really able to do that. And then so but the, what they're not seeing is what those ceilings are for them, where as opposed to let's say what the ceilings are for somebody who lives on the Upper East Side, and again, who's well, you know, politically and socially connected. Hmm. It's an interesting comparison you're raising. And I think in the case of the Chinese immigrant professional class that I'm talking about, they are focused on that ceiling and they they are keenly aware of that ceiling and that's why they have become so active because they're thinking look we've made it ourselves we're professionally successful we have resources we want our kids to have you know access to stanford etc without being kept out by these race conscious programs we don't want to have a ceiling on us we want to be able to go all the way whatever that means so they're sort of planning ahead and saying, we want our, our kids to be able to experience that. So I think they're keenly aware of that ceiling and trying to um, break it down. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I mean, the way in, in one way, I would agree with what you're saying, which is that Asian Americans are even the wealthiest Asian Americans and even those who have socially been somewhat integrated into the upper classes, white upper classes, are still very aware of their not whiteness, right? They're made aware of that all the time. I mean, this is not, um, you know, I grew up a, a, a upper middle class, middle class, um, upper middle class Asian American, and I have been spared many of the um, insults and humiliations that come um, that come into the lives of Asian Americans who are poorer, for example, or come from, let's say, Southeast Asian backgrounds as opposed to Korea, a Korean background. Um, but even I, you know, experience those slights um, on the regular, and and it's just part of living as an Asian American. So. There is part of there is that ceiling in some ways, but um, I think that what these groups are trying to do is say um, we reject the idea that there should be any ceiling and we are going to fight it. We are going to um, uh, make sure that white people's idea of what the racial order should be does not carry the day. Right. That we are going and, and they have somehow come up with the idea of these groups that in the Harvard case, for example, it's white do-gooders, Harvard University itself, and Black people who are against Asians, right? And mm -hmm. um, therefore, it's Asians who are being sort of segregated, and all these other groups are trying to keep them segregated, which is this fantastical distortion, right, of history and of reality. Um, Harvard is not exactly an institution that has been known as being pro-Black or pro-minority, right? I mean, that's kind of laughable when you consider the history of these elite institutions, right? Um, so because Harvard is making now a modest effort to diversify its classes, um, its campus, um, it doesn't really justify Asian Americans turning around and saying, you are penalizing Asian Americans and you are on the side of Black people. 
and you are social engineering to help black people because you favor them. I mean, this is all, hmm. how would I put it? It's lunacy, right? It's not actually, has no basis in fact, but it works really well as rhetoric in the American scene because Americans, white Americans have been raised, have been socialized with all of this, all of this discourse about black entitlement, black laziness, black people just trying to get ahead and get special treatment from the state, right? So it lands very easily on white people. They're very, tend to be very receptive to these arguments. And that's why it's a brilliant um, piece of rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, what I hear you saying is essentially it's somewhat delusional to think that at some point the ceiling for Asian Americans will be as high as for the people who are, you know, the, the kind of, let's say, billionaire, millionaire, multi uh, millionaire classes of the, of, let's say, of white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. those. Yeah, it's like if you think about it, it's kind of like why Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby. So often people, especially in the conservative circles, they'll put they'll kind of put forth The Great Gatsby and you'll say, you see, like this is the American dream. This is what you're supposed to be like. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, the way I am assuming and many other people interpret it is that it's actually a criticism of capitalism. You know, there was this famous line that the more you kind of go toward it, uh, sort of toward success, the further away it recedes. And the point is to say that no, none of us will ever be a part of that. These people are very exclusive and they tend to be that way because, I mean, ultimately, if they start letting one, two, three, four people in, I mean, they're going to have to start letting everybody in. And so the point that Scott Fitzgerald was making, and this is, I think, such a critical point for all of us to take, is that, I mean, ultimately, if you're not fighting oppression, you're never, ever going to be a part of these people of, the, of their lives. It's just, it's not possible. And no matter how hard he fought, and, you know, there was this uh, famous line where he says, you know, I'm going up, up, up. No matter how hard he fought, he was never going to be one of them. Yes, yeah. right. And I think it goes back to what Alan was saying earlier about the tie between race and capitalism, right? Um, whiteness and um, and capitalism, right? What is the connection there? And capitalism is a system where only the very few can be at the top, right? And it's the very nature of the system. And race is one of the mechanisms which capitalism uses to sort people and keep people in different positions. Right. And then also the other point I would have wanted to make is, uh, so if you think about even companies like, let's say, uh, I'll just mention Google just, just because it's uh, a popular kind of thing to talk about right now. Uh, so with like Google, YouTube, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, YouTube, uh, so Google would say something like, well, you know, we're, we're pretty big, uh, like let's say informa misinformation is super important to us. Uh, so we're really big on censoring it. You know, we have these like algorithms and we have these programs, these, uh, learning programs that try to sort it out, uh, which we pretty much, we try to delete these videos before they get out. Uh, and so you, you would have the other side that says, well, I mean, a lot of times it's not good enough because they just keep popping up. So at first of all, it's not as fast as they claim it to be. And then they just keep popping up like new people uploaded. So what you can actually argue is based on the business model, let's say if we don't have, you know, hypothetically subscribers based on the business model is that for Google, they have actually more incentive to ride the fence to kind of to placate one side and then to also obviously in some ways placate the other by just allowing them, you know, kind of free reign and not necessarily completely free, but free-ish enough, free-ish enough for it to, to, to matter and, you know, kind of the importance of our, the importance that it has in our society. So if you think about even just now relating this to Harvard, uh, so yeah, there's no real reason for a system that's benefited so much off of, let's say, the donations of a particular group and a particular class of people for them to significantly change. So yes, you can make a case on the one hand that you could say, well, you know, it's because of the culture, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has been really important, you know, so they've done, you know, they've made incremental changes based on us. Uh, and then you could say, well, you know, life only works in the sense that it will only increment mental change is possible. But yeah, but how do you then square it with the fact that on the other hand, in these institutions, businesses, whatever, I mean, again, they actually benefit from riding the fence, from finding a way to make everybody happy, because then they get to continue to thrive. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and, and I'm not sure if this goes along, if I would call this riding the fence, but to go back to the issue of DEI, right? Um, the university can claim to any critics, we are making efforts, we have DEI programs in place. So we are actively right. trying to counter this segregated history, right? So is that riding the fence? Or is that really just promoting and defending the status quo with a little window dressing tacked on? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and to go back to Google, I mean, I, I don't have the expertise to dive deeply into this debate. But you, I know enough to know that algorithms are themselves, right, racialized, right? There's been a lot of research on how algorithms, like, for instance, um, you know, when the police use algorithms to um, detect crime or to use facial recognition machinery and things like that, that the algorithms themselves show signs of racial bias because it's humans who create the algorithms and they're not paying attention to 
um, probably not deliberately doing it, but not paying attention to the way their racial assumptions get smuggled into that process. So, um, right, that's a whole nother um, issue. But in the case of the, you know, of the Harvard um, lawsuit, it was, I think what's frustrated me about the coverage of it has been the focus on the Supreme Court, which I understand, right, right now we're dealing with the Supreme Court, which looks like you know, in the eyes of some observers, it's like a rogue court. It's breaking its precedent over and over again. It seems to be heedless of ethics issues among its own members, you know, to a very alarming degree. People are wondering how much is this court going to extend itself to promote this right-wing, you know, um, ultra-nationalist surge that we've been seeing in U.S. politics as we slide, as Timothy Snyder talks about, toward a you know a fascist regime in the US how much is the court going to allow that how much you know will the court step in so all of that's going on and I understand that's an important debate going on but if we think about the larger historical context the larger historical processes um, underlying these racialized cases then I think we have a better understanding of why those cases have, sort of a predetermined outcome, right? It's inevitable affirmative action is either gonna be weakened so radically that it's almost meaningless, which is what happened right from the get-go with Baki, or it's just gonna to be toppled, which is what happened in the Harvard case, because it's not going to be the case in an anti-Black society that the court is going to endorse programs which meaningfully um, redress, right? Racial um, oppression, racial injustices, and meaningfully give people equal opportunities. That's not going to happen. So the court is an institution like the university, like any almost any other institution you can mention, these, these institutions operate by supporting and reproducing the status quo and doing what they need to in terms of cosmetics and window dressing to um, get away with that. Right. And then so, you know, now as we start wrapping up, what would you say for us, you know, for regular people, right, folks on the street, uh, how do we begin to remediate it? How do we begin to address these issues? I think reparations is a good place to start. And the fact that reparations always, um, as articulated by the Black struggle in the US, have involved a very significant economic or financial component, again, goes back to the idea of racial capitalism, right? We have um, a racialized society and a society where the economic goods in society have been distributed to a significant degree, not entirely, but to a significant degree according to race. So any project that tries to redress racial inequalities past and enduring needs to address economic and financial inequality. So the reparations bill in um, California that's being considered by the California Commission um, does involve personal compensation to descendants of slaves who live in California today. And I think I don't remember the exact amount, but it's a significant amount. Um, and it does involve um, economic dispensations to different kinds of organizations that support right racial equality so um, and support black communities. So I think the US, you know, it's a difficult time because it's actually, you know, as we see with January 6th, there is a lot of um, outpouring of white nationalist beliefs of um, anti democratic beliefs we see this with the um, fight over voting rights, right? That there is a significant portion of the US population that doesn't think that voting rights are actual rights, that, that people, everybody deserves a right to vote. So in this context, which feels very fraught, especially if we look at you know fascist um, empowerment across the globe, whether it's Hungary, India, Brazil, wherever we're looking, Germany, um, you know, the right, the far right is on the move. When we're looking at that global context and we're looking at things happening in the US, it's difficult to think that reparations are um, are feasible, but it's also true that when we settle for things like affirmative action, which are definitely half measures, and as we can see, we're kind of undermined from the beginning and then finally destroyed, um, it makes a certain sense to go right for what we think is actually fair, what we think is just, which is reparations, I think, which would involve, if we take it seriously, a restructuring of wealth, a restructuring of power in this country. So, um, you know, I think it's a bold and radical kind of proposal, but I think it's one that is morally, ethically um, called for. Right. And I think what you're also saying is it'll bring us a little bit closer to a truer form of meritocracy. Hmm. Right. Right. I mean, if we want equal opportunity, 
um, let's try to achieve that. But we have never been a society that has equal opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Wow. This is so good. All right, Alan, uh, final questions for Claire before we wrap up. Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Um, I believe the book is on sale through Cambridge University Press, through their website, um, probably through other venues as well. Um, I don't do social media, so, you know, I'm a dinosaur in that sense, and I, I, I can't be followed in that sense, but um, I do, let's see, I think you can look on academiaedu.edu for articles, and then on my um, website, my university website. I do also post publications sometimes. I don't have my own personal website. I'm not much into, um, you know, the whole personal PR game. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, because I mean, most of the people we meet actually are. Because I, I mean, you know, podcasting and whatnot. Hey, listen, much respect for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. So, yeah. So, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. This was incredibly informative. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Absolutely. All right, Claire. Well, I hope you. you have a good day. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. <laughs>